Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This episode of the Aotearoa History Show contains some adult humour. Please listen with care. You might have heard about the New Zealand number eight wire mentality. Number eight wire is nothing special. Just a particular thickness of steel fencing wire and this stuff has more than 160 years of history in Aotearoa. Cheap steel fencing wire was first invented in 1855 by a guy called Henry Bessemer, just as more and more Europeans were migrating to Aotearoa in the 1860s and 70s. So unlike in Europe and many other parts of the world, farms in Aotearoa were covered in steel wire fences rather than old stone walls or hedges. A lot of farms in Aotearoa were pretty remote, so if anything broke, farmers often had to fix it themselves. And you know what's really handy for those kind of jobs? Number eight gauge fencing wire. Yeah, fencing wire became a metaphor for a rough and ready kind of innovation. It's tied up in the mythology of New Zealand farming. But it's far from the only example of people innovating with agriculture in Aotearoa. Hundreds of years before colonisation, Māori were innovating with cultivating native plants, experimenting with food preservation and learning to grow tropical plants like kumara in our cold, temperate climate. And later, New Zealand became a major player in the global wool industry thanks to our innovations with new sheep breeds, shearing techniques and soil science. And there's way, way more. Refrigerated ships, aerial fertiliser drops and believe it or not, an incredibly controversial kind of comb. Ko William Ray tēnei. Ko Māni Dunlop Baho. No mai whakarongo mai ki te Aotearoa History Show. Ka whawhai tunu mātou, moake, moake, aake. Smoke bombs have been thrown on to Eden Park. Smoke bombs, flares, being an attempt to come onto the field. Last night, a most grievous railway accident took place at Tangiwai. We are marching to Parliament, and no more land to be sold. Innovation in New Zealand agriculture is a lot older than Number 8 wire. It goes back to the first people to arrive here. The ancestors of Māori found these islands jam-packed with birds and seafood, but not many edible fruit and vegetables. The thing is, plants in Aotearoa had evolved side by side with birds for millions of years, so they didn't develop the kinds of fruits and grains which mammals like us enjoy eating. But humans are a clever bunch, and all through history we've found ways of turning plants that are inedible in their natural state into dinner. So how did Māori do this when they arrived? In some cases, they could rely on mātauranga Māori, traditional knowledge. For example, tikoka, the native cabbage tree, was similar to plants in other parts of the Pacific. Māori knew they could bake the stem and roots of the tree as a sugary treat. Other plants were less familiar, like karaka.
Māori would have seen birds such as kiruru feasting on karaka berries and were probably quick to try them themselves. Unfortunately, while those berries are delicious for native birds, they are poisonous to humans. But Māori kept experimenting with karaka and eventually they figured out the berries could be roasted, leaving an edible kernel. Before long, groves of edible plants like karaka and tikoka were being planted around settlements where they could be easily harvested. But native plants often didn't produce enough kai to keep everyone full. So Māori in most parts of Aotearoa relied on plants they brought to these islands, taro, uwhi, and most important of all, the kumara. These were tropical plants that would only grow in warmer parts of the country. We talked about this a bit in our episode on the first 500 years of Māori history in Aotearoa. Over time, Māori worked out they could boost harvests by planting kumara and raised mounds, adding small stones to the soil, and building walls around their gardens out of volcanic rocks. You can still see some of these walls today at the Otsua Taiwa stonefields near Auckland Airport. The volcanic rocks soaked up the sun's heat in the day and radiated it out at night, keeping the tropical kumara nice and cosy. That extended the growing season by up to a month in a much cooler climate. Māori also knew kumara did best in sandy, free-draining soils, like in the tropical Pacific. To get that sort of soil here, they'd first burn the bush to make space for a garden. The ash worked as fertiliser. Next, they had to carry a whole lot of sand and gravel to the garden and mix it in with the soil. Every hectare of Kumara Garden needed about 1,300 cubic metres of sand and gravel. So, as you can imagine, it took a lot of work to make a Kumara Garden. The biggest gardens were in the Waikato Basin, and they covered at least 3,000 hectares. Waikato Māori built these gardens by shifting about 4 million cubic metres of sand and gravel. That is enough to make a sandcastle bigger than the Sky Tower. Using all these techniques, Māori managed to expand the range of places where they could grow kumara about as far south as Te Waihora, Lake Ellesmere. But in colder parts of these islands, kumara wouldn't grow at all, and Māori had to develop other technologies to keep themselves fed. One of the most important was poha, special airtight bags made from ripurama, or bull kelp. The tribes of Ngaitahu would fill poha with meat and fat taken from seals and birds, sort of similar to how we still preserve tinned meat. The knowledge is still used by many Māori communities. For example, many Ngaitahu hapu still use poha as part of the seasonal titi or mutton bird harvest. The arrival of European whalers, sealers and missionaries meant big changes in Māori agriculture. After all, the plants Europeans brought with them often thrived in temperate climates, meaning they were better adapted to grow in Aotearoa than tropical plants like kumara. Potatoes, wheat, corn and peach trees were spread all across these islands. Māori were also quick to adopt new European farming technologies, from simple stuff like metal shovels and ploughs to more complex things like watermills. Although Māori were less willing to embrace some European techniques. For example, many were reluctant to use manure as fertiliser because of concerns it might contaminate kai and violate tapu. Instead, they continued to rely on traditional fertilisers like seaweed. On the whole, Māori in the 1840s and 50s innovated successfully with European crops, livestock and technologies. 
They dominated Aotearoa's food export business up until the late 1860s, feeding hungry colonists in New Zealand and Australia as well as themselves. Colonial politician and lawyer William Swainson described the scale of Māori agriculture in the Bay of Plenty, Taupo and Rotorua districts like this. In the year 1857, the natives of these districts alone had upwards of 3,000 acres of land in wheat, 3,000 acres in potatoes, nearly 2,000 acres in maize and upwards of 1,000 acres planted with coumarins. They own nearly 1,000 horses, 200 head of cattle and 5,000 pigs. They are also the owners of 43 small coasting vessels, averaging 20 tonnes each and upwards of 900 canoes. In the course of a single year, 1,792 canoes entered the harbour of Auckland, bringing to market by this means alone 200 tonnes of potatoes, 1,400 baskets of onions, 1,700 baskets of maize, 100 baskets of peaches, 1,200 tonnes of firewood, 45 tonnes of fish and 1,300 pigs, besides flax, poultry, curry gum and vegetables. So, yeah, like we said, Māori were no slouches when it came to embracing new agricultural technologies and crops. This period of peace and plenty, as Swainson called it, ended less than a decade later due to the New Zealand wars and the native land court. Meanwhile, Pākehā farmers in Aotearoa sometimes had a rocky start. For example, in 1840, the New Zealand company tried to set up a farming settlement in the Lower Hutt Valley. But they didn't realise they were building on a floodplain, and within a year their crops were destroyed when the river burst its banks. However, some early Pākehā farmers did make use of Mātauranga Māori when they decided to listen. Reverend Thomas Burns followed the lead of Ngaitahu Hapu by setting up crops on Otago Peninsula so they would receive all-day sun and even copied some of their potato-growing techniques. And eventually, even colonial farmers who didn't follow the Māori example learned about local conditions. One thing they learned was that many parts of New Zealand were too steep and wet for growing crops, like corn and wheat. So they switched to the type of farming Aotearoa has become most famous for, sheep farming. And over time, they got really, really good at it. Historically, Kiwi sheep farmers have been an innovative bunch. The first shearers in Aotearoa used the same method people used back in England, tying the sheep's legs together and cutting the wool by hand. Hard work. So in the 1850s and 60s, a new style developed in Australia and New Zealand, leaving the sheep's legs free and clamping the animal between your legs to hold it still. None of that wasting time tying the legs together. Suddenly, instead of shearing 35 sheep a day, shearers could get through 70 to 80. Then, in the 1880s, the first shearing machines arrived. And as the South Canterbury Times reported in 1894, things suddenly got a lot faster. Māori shearers appear to know how to get splendid work out of the Wolseley shearing machine. At Maru Station the other day, a shearer named Harawera put through 204 crossbred sheep from 5 o'clock in the morning till 5 o'clock at night, with two hours out for meals. Another Māori sheared 208 the same day. Throughout the 20th century, Kiwis were breaking shearing records left and right, and one shearer even became a global celebrity, Godfrey Bowen. 
Bowen shot to stardom in 1953. He beat a world record by sharing 456 ewes in nine hours at Opiki in Manawatu. His secret was a special shearing method Godfrey had invented with his brother. They called it the Bowen Technique. It used long rhythmic movements to put less strain on the shearer while getting more wool off the sheep. The Guardian newspaper in the UK compared the grace of Bowen's movements to a world-famous ballet dancer. Kind of sounds like erotic it does sound fiction, kind of erotic. eh? Well, you know, Long rhythmic movements. You know what they say about New Zealanders and sheep. Oh, wow. <laughs> in 1957, the New Zealand Film Unit produced a video with Godfrey Bowen himself demonstrating the technique. The man and the sheep and the machine work smoothly together so that the wool can be removed with a minimum of effort and lost time. It's simple to learn, and in practice it gives close, clean, good shearing. And when fully mastered, top speed. Bowen went on to found the Agrodome near Rotorua after realising farming could be a massive drawcard for international tourism. He also helped organise the first Golden Shears shearing tournament in 1961. But the Bowen technique was only part of what made Kiwi shearers so fast. They also had a special and incredibly controversial comb. A shearing comb is the bit which attaches in front of the blades, guiding the wool in to be cut. And in the mid-20th century, Kiwi farmers started experimenting with a comb that was a centimetre or two wider than normal with three extra teeth. It might seem like a minor tweak, but over in Australia, these so-called wide combs were so controversial they triggered a drive-by shooting at a family barbecue. The thing is, shearing is a very competitive job. Shearers often race to see who can get through their sheep the fastest without sacrificing wool quality or injuring the animal. The wider combs grabbed more wool in each blow. It's estimated your average shearer could get through an extra 20 to 30 sheep a day using a wide comb. But the leaders of the Australian Shearing Union decided this wide comb was no good. They claimed it might cause injuries to sheep or shearers and reduce wool quality or be used to justify cuts in pay and conditions. There was absolutely no evidence any of that stuff was true. But the union would not budge. Gangs of shearers rebelled against the union's ban on the comb, including many Kiwi migrants. Other shearers backed the union's ban. And as Australian author Mark Filmer writes in his book, Three Steel Teeth, things got nasty. There were fights in pubs and clubs, and there were union shearers raiding sheds where the rebel shearers were working. There was an open gun battle in Coleraine. It's a sleepy little town of 1,200 people and there's two groups of rival shearing teams firing guns at each other in a suburban street. Two Kiwi shearers got shot and ended up in hospital. Eventually, Australian courts stepped in to overrule the ban on wide combs and that decision triggered a 10-week strike by the Australian Sheep Shearing Union. Crazy, but true, it was a controversial comb. So what's our next agricultural innovation? Well, you've got to do refrigerated shipping, right, one? Yes, you do. 
So, back in the 1860s and 70s, sheep farmers were riding high thanks to booming wool prices. But the boom did not last. What goes up must come down. Between 1860 and 1900, global wool prices crashed from 16 pence a pound to about 5 pence. The entire economic future of Aotearoa was in crisis. Meanwhile, back in Europe, the population was exploding. In the UK, the population nearly tripled from about 15 million in 1800 to over 40 million in 1900. So suddenly there were a lot more hungry mouths to feed, and European farms struggled to keep up with demand. Farmers in Aotearoa had tons of sheep, but no way of getting their meat to the people who wanted to eat it. They tried tinned mutton, but people didn't really want to eat it because apparently tinned mutton is absolutely disgusting. Well, it does sound disgusting. But the best way of keeping meat safe and delicious for a long time is to freeze it. And the first refrigerated ship set sail from Sydney in 1876. But the refrigerator failed and all the meat rotted. Can you imagine just a ship full of oh, rotting meat? Really horrendous. So a few more refrigerated ships were trialled over the next couple of years in Australia and South America. But the voyage which really changed the game set sail from Dunedin in 1882. It was a 1,200-tonne sailing ship, funnily enough, and originally called the Dunedin. The Australian and New Zealand Land Company paid £1,000 to outfit the Dunedin with a steam-powered refrigerator. Then they loaded it up with nearly 5,000 prime sheep and lamb carcasses at Port Chalmers. On February 15, 1882, it set sail for London. This trip was very nearly another disaster. First, sparks from the refrigerator machinery set the sails on fire. And then, when the Dunedin arrived in the tropics, the cargo started defrosting because cold air wasn't circulating properly in the hold. Captain John Whitson went below deck to cut more air ducts, but he got stuck and almost froze to death. Luckily, his crew managed to loop a rope around his leg and drag him to safety. In the end, it all paid off. The Dunedin sold its cargo in London for double the price it could have fetched back here. And within 10 years, there were 17 freezing works in Aotearoa, capable of processing 3.5 million carcasses a year. Refrigeration single-handedly saved New Zealand's economy. By the 1920s, 93% of all New Zealand's exports were some kind of animal product, and a big chunk of that was meat and dairy products exported on refrigerated ships. As a government report written in 1916 said... The general prosperity and advancement of New Zealand hangs on the slender piston rod of a refrigerating machine. Refrigeration also had a big effect on the wider structure of the farming industry. Yeah, many farms stopped mixing sheep farming with growing crops like oats and wheat and focused solely on farming sheep and cattle. Higher profit margins and government intervention also shifted Aotearoa from a country dominated by super-wealthy individual landowners to smaller family-owned farms. And as often happens, one innovation fed another. Up until the invention of refrigerated shipping, the dominant sheep breed in Aotearoa was the Merino. Everybody knew Merino sheep made the best wool. In fact, when these sheep were first bred in Spain, their wool was so valuable that anyone caught trying to take a Merino sheep out of the country could face the death penalty. But thanks to refrigerated shipping, Kiwi farmers were now making money from sheep meat 
as well as wool. And merino sheep aren't all that great to eat, too tough and stringy. So many farmers switched to breeds like Lincolns, Romneys and Leicesters. These were much tastier, but their wool was much less valuable. So from the 1860s, a Scottish migrant called James Little tried to get the best of both worlds. He experimented, crossing Lincolns and Merinos to create a new breed. And eventually, he succeeded. He bred a sheep that produced wool nearly as good as a Merino, but with much better meat. Little named his new sheep the Corridale, after the station he worked on near Wamaru in North Otago. And today, there are about a hundred million Corridales in the world, which makes them first equal with Merino as the world's most popular sheep breed. In the 1930s, agricultural scientist Dr Francis Dry worked at Massey College to create another new sheep breed called the Drysdale. It had especially coarse wool, ideal for making carpets. And in 1956, Professor Geoffrey Perrin, another Massey scientist, created another famous sheep breed, the Perrindale. It was ideal for the meat export trade and hardy enough for steep high country stations. OK, enough sheep talk. Let's switch to another bunch of innovators, market gardeners. So when the gold rush took off in the 1860s, it was pretty tricky to get fresh fruit and veggies over to the diggings. So most of the gold miners had to survive on mutton and potatoes. And when Chinese diggers joined the gold rush, they found this diet absolutely disgusting. And many of them decided to do something about it by growing their own fruit and veggies. These gardeners imported Chinese techniques for fertilising, irrigating and closely monitoring crops for pests and disease. The level of care and attention astonished the Tuapika Times, which wrote, There is no class of people on the face of the earth that can take more out of a half acre of good soil than the Chinese. Every inch of surface is brought into requisition and nothing is wasted. For most of the 20th century, Chinese market gardens dominated the trade. By 1957, it was estimated three quarters of the leafy greens eaten in Aotearoa came from market gardens run by Chinese New Zealanders. One particularly famous Chinese agricultural innovator was Chao Sung, or as he was better known in Aotearoa, Chu Chong. Chu Chong came to Otago in 1867 and started off selling scrap metal from the goldfields. A few years later, he set himself up as a peddler, sort of travelling salesman. He was wandering through the bush in Taranaki when he noticed a particular kind of fungus growing on the trees, the hakeke, or woodier fungus. Hakeke wasn't often eaten by Māori or Pākehā, but it is considered a delicacy in many parts of the world, including China. So Chu Chong set himself up as a fungus exporter, paying locals to harvest hakeke and shipping it overseas. This was great news for locals in Taranaki, who were doing it tough in the grips of the Long Depression. Many dairy farmers made more money selling fungus than butter. From 1872 to 1883, almost 2,000 tonnes of dried hakeke were exported from Aotearoa. Locals called it Taranaki wool, and Taranaki was dubbed the Fungus Province. You might have thought that after refrigerated ships turned up, it was all smooth sailing for Kiwi farmers, no pun intended, but no. Yeah, right at the time those first ships were sailing in the 1880s and 90s, New Zealand was facing a whole different crisis. Speaking at a conference in 1905, one farming leader wrote to the Otago Times complaining that 
The land does not now smile with harvest when tickled with a hoe as it did 20 years ago. Our pastures do not hold grass so well as they used to. Many of the people who promoted the colonisation of Aotearoa claimed the soil here was naturally fertile, but that turned out to be wishful thinking. As soil science became more sophisticated, it was discovered that many areas lacked trace elements like cobalt, molybdenum and copper, and many soils were rapidly losing phosphate and nitrogen through intensive grazing. As the soil ran out of these nutrients, grass died and harvests failed. These kinds of problems couldn't be fixed with a bit of number eight wire. They needed in-depth research and experimentation. So in the early 20th century, the government increased support for existing agricultural training schools like Lincoln College and established new ones like Massey College, which first opened its doors in 1928. Scientists worked out the nitrogen problem could be partly fixed by changing our pasture to include more plants like clover, which suck nitrogen out of the air and add it to the soil. But phosphate was a trickier problem. The solution was a fertiliser known as superphosphate. It was invented by European scientists and chemists in the mid-1800s. But how are farmers supposed to spread all that fertiliser? especially on the steep hills which dominated many sheep farms. Well, in the 1930s, a few daredevil pilots experimented dropping superphosphate out of aircraft, inventing what is now called aerial top dressing. After World War II in 1949, those experiments turned into a full-on industry. Old military aircraft like Tiger Moth biplanes were perfect for dropping fertiliser. And we had a whole bunch of former Air Force pilots with the skills and the nerves to do the job. And they definitely needed those nerves. Flying a few metres off the ground in remote hill country is a dangerous business. A lot of pilots were killed. But the risks seemed to be worth it. In 1985, top dressing had its biggest year ever. Three million tonnes of fertiliser were dropped on farms across the country. The combination of all these innovations saw a massive rise in New Zealand's agricultural production through the 20th century. In the early 1900s, there were 20 million sheep in Aotearoa. But by 1982, there were 70 million. Historians call this period of 20th century New Zealand the Grasslands Revolution. As historian Tom Brooking and Vaughan David write... 51% of New Zealand's surface area was converted to grasslands by the 1970s. This far exceeded the world average of 37%. Overseas scientists marvelled at New Zealand's super-efficient grassland farming. Faith ran high in the limitless possibilities of science and technology to resolve humanity's problems. But that optimism blinded many New Zealanders to some of the costs of innovation. The expansion of pasture came at the expense of native bush. And removing those trees from steep hills led to erosion, which then destroyed that pasture. Runoff, fertilisers and pesticides have polluted our waterways. And government officials often justified turning over Māori land to Pākehā by claiming Māori refused to adopt new technologies and techniques. But in fact, many just lacked the resources to do so. And the consequences of farming innovations weren't just felt in Aotearoa. 
For decades, the raw materials we used to make superphosphate fertilizer mostly came from Pacific Islands, including Nauru, Banaba and Makatea. These islands were strip-mined through much of the 20th century, leaving a wasteland of jagged limestone. The local people got almost none of the profit, and many were forced to leave the islands altogether. Today, it's estimated 80 to 90% of the land of Nauru and Banaba is uninhabitable, due to phosphate mining. Which just goes to show, innovation can come with serious consequences. But that doesn't mean innovation itself is good or bad. It's about how we use it. And there have been just so many number eight wire innovations which we haven't had time to talk about. Yeah, Kiwis invented the first farm bikes. Johnny Callender's mountain goat was able to get farmers up hills even horses couldn't climb. And Timaru vet Colin Murdoch invented the first tranquilizer gun in the 1950s. We popularised the electric fence and found a way of pasteurising butter so it didn't give off nasty smells. There's also been an increasing diversity of agriculture. Aotearoa used to be dominated by sheep, but when Britain entered the European economic community in the 1970s and farming subsidies were removed in the 1980s, farmers had to make enormous changes to stay afloat. Minimum prices, cheap loans, tax breaks and more disappeared almost overnight. The 1980s were traumatic for many farmers, but the change sparked more innovations. And a lot of these innovations were pushed along by women. By the late 20th century, farmers' daughters often went to university or to jobs in urban areas and promoted new technologies and techniques on the family farm. Organisations like the Women's Branch of Federated Farmers ran training programmes for female farmers who increasingly started running farms in their own right. As Jocelyn Fish, president of the National Council of Women, said in 1990... Young farming women don't want to stop computing the latest herd breeding index to go and make a cake to have a contest with someone. After the 1980s, a lot of sheep farms were converted to other uses. One big one has been kiwifruit orchards. Kiwifruit were originally called Chinese gooseberries, and they were brought to New Zealand from China by school headmistress Isabel Fraser in 1904. Turners and growers started marketing them as kiwifruit in 1959, and the rest is green furry history. When that multi-billion dollar industry was threatened by the kiwifruit disease PSA in the 2010s, kiwifruit growers joined forces with government scientists to breed a new kind of kiwifruit, the sun gold, which resisted the disease. But the biggest recent change in farming has been the massive growth in dairy farming, pushed along by innovations in milk processing and irrigation. Although those innovations have come with some environmental problems as well. Aotearoa isn't just known for our sheep anymore. No, we're a land of dairy farmers, wine growers, orchardists and deer farmers. Aquaculture has taken off too. We're world famous for our green-lipped mussels. And given the challenges the agricultural industry faces today with environmental challenges, climate change and competition from synthetic meats and milk, we're going to need a whole lot more innovation to write the next chapter of New Zealand agricultural history. Thanks for listening to the Aotearoa History Show. Make sure to follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or whatever podcasting app you use. You can also find a video version of this show on YouTube. If you want more New Zealand history podcasts from RNZ, why not check out the New Zealand War Series or Black Sheep or Eyewitness. 
You can find them all at our website, rnz.co.nz forward slash podcasts. The Aotearoa History Show was made with support from the Ministry of Education. It's hosted by William Ray and Marnie Dunlop. It was written and produced by William Ray, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our director is Duncan Smith, and our sound engineers are Phil Benge, William Saunders and Mark Chesterman. We had historical and editorial support from Mike Stevens, David Green, Bronwyn Houliston and Matai Smith. And a huge thanks to the dozens of reporters, presenters, producers, complaints managers and others at RNZ who lent their voice acting talents to the show. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.